Welcome to the Chooseify radio podcast. We view the concept of financial independence as a life optimization strategy that helps you crush the game using a mixture of conventional and unconventional methods. My name is Jonathan Mendonza, a pharmacist pursuing financial independence, and my co-host name is Brad Barrett, a CPA turned entrepreneur who reached financial independence through diligent savings and online business ventures. We host a twice a week show on Mondays and Fridays that focuses on living below your means, creating multiple income streams, straightforward investment strategies, tax optimization hacks, and travel rewards. This is what winning looks like. Welcome to the show. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys, Travel Rewards 2018. This is the episode that we promised you that we were going to make happen. And in my mind, coming back to this conversation, there was no better way to tackle it than actually to bring Marla Tanner on the show. Now, if you have been in the FI community for any period of time, and in particular, if you've gone to any number of FI meetups, you either have met Marla or heard of Marla. At bare minimum, she would win a participation award for having been to more meetups than anybody else on the planet. She affectionately considers herself Mr. Money Mustache's unofficial stalker. And on top of that, she is absolutely the person that I think of when I think of somebody that has a travel rewards redemption plan and is actually doing all the trips that we all would like to do in theory and maybe have accumulated the points to do, but for whatever reason, still haven't taken action on that. She not only has done it, but is continuing to do it. And when I first met her was at Camp Mustache 2017, the first event that Brad and I did together representing Choose FI. I had a conversation with her on two rocking chairs outside of the retreat center. And she was telling me how part of her game plan includes getting her circle of friends together, planning out the trips they actually want to do. And then she coaches them on exactly what the step-by-step process is. And then her and her social circle go on these amazing trips together as a group. And if you started with our earlier episodes, this is exactly the next episode that you need. So I'm incredibly excited about this. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? I am doing quite well, Jonathan. Yeah, this should be a real blast. I'm thrilled that we have Marla on the podcast. And she is just one of my favorite people in the FI community, one of my favorite people in the world. She just has this infectious energy and it's just fun to be around. And yeah, we talk about community. And like you said, Jonathan, Marla is essentially the tie that binds for many of us in the FI community because she knows so many people from these meetups that she's attended. And yeah, I met her last January and she's become one of my closest friends. So it says a lot about these meetups and the relationships that you can build. And Jonathan, you mentioned there how Marla is the travel rewards expert that many of us want to be because she's actually traveling and using these points. And I think a lot of people think of me in theory as as this expert, but I'm accumulating the points and I'm doing this on paper and on the computer, but Marla's actually traveling and it should just be a wonderful conversation. So with that, Marla, welcome to the podcast. 
Well, thank you. I feel overwhelmed with such graciousness from you guys. I certainly have loved becoming friends with both of you and meeting you at various events. I guess we've done Camp Mustache, Camp Fi, and FinCon together, and we have become great friends, and uh, it's an honor to come on my favorite podcast. So Marlo, one of your claims to fame, you represent not first generation Phi, not second generation Phi, but third generation Phi. And I'd love to hear you kind of take us through a little bit of your backstory and kind of explain to us what it means to be third generation Phi. Well, thanks. Sure. I guess using the term third generation Phi might be a little bit of a stretch, but given my grandfather and his frugality, he did retire at 60 and he was born in 1909. So I consider that pretty early retirement for his generation. I don't think retirement was even a concept for much, much earlier than that. So he retired then. And then my dad retired at 55. And then I retired at 43. So I think I'm in good company and certainly learned all these lessons of frugality uh, from some masters. Marla, you know, we're all about actionable tips and really diving into things. What were those lessons that were passed on? Were they overt or was it just being in this culture of frugality and, I guess, early retirement, ultimately? I think they were both. It was So looking at my grandfather, he did an amazing thing. He never got to go to university and he made sure that both his daughters went to university and he paid for all five of his grandchildren to go for their first year of college. So that came in the form of um, an allowance, and we needed to track every penny of our spending and then report back to him at each school holiday, so both at Christmas and then at the end of the school year, tracking our spending, talking about how we use the money, uh, what we learned from that, and he did that for each one of us. And then in terms of my mother, she gave us an allowance that went beyond just spending money and instead covered all of our spending. So we were responsible for a whole school year's worth of clothing, restaurants, movies, entertainment, you name it. We had to budget for the whole school year. Marla, was that money given to you in kind of one fell swoop at the beginning of the year and you had to budget as you saw fit or did your mom, I guess, kind of dole it out over the course of months? I'm mostly curious, like, were you able to make that decision where, hey, if I blew 90% of the money in the first month. Well, then those are the breaks kind of like, there's nothing left. Like, was it that real world or did she, did she pass the money out over the course of months? No, it was that real world. It was the whole money going into our bank account at the beginning of the year. And if we didn't spend it, we kept what was left. Were there instances in those first couple of years, let's say where you and your sister did spend a significant portion of it upfront or were you, were you good at this kind of right out of the gate? I think we were good at it right out of the gate. And I have spent time trying to figure out why did these lessons work? Like why, why were we able to do that and not have any hiccups along the way? Because I think my parents would have expected us to have some mistakes, but for whatever reason we did not. And both my sister and I wound up very frugal, which I know in some families that doesn't happen. And one kid is the spender and one is the saver. But in our case, we both uh, turned out as frugal weirdos. Well, let's talk about that a little bit further. So frugal weirdo. So how old are you the first year you've been given this allowance of money? I would say 13, 14, somewhere in there. So you've been given this deposit of money. And I'm just wondering, like, what is going through your mind the first time that you take it out to make a purchase? Is there any sort of like, this is the holy grail, I'm not allowed to touch it type mentality around it? Or were you very comfortable coming up with a plan on how to spend that on a month to month basis? That's a lot of responsibility for a 13-year-old. 
I agree. I think at the beginning, it was uh, some excitement around buying things that I wanted to buy that I had previously not been allowed to buy. I remember our family shopping at a place called Bargain Herald's, and uh, that was an embarrassing an embarrassing place to shop. So it was kind of, oh, where can I get the the coolest shoes that everybody else has? But after doing some quick calculations, I realized if I bought the cool shoes, there wouldn't be enough left over. So uh, I think I probably just followed the similar path of buying maybe the odd thing that fit. I remember Lacoste polo shirts were very big when I was a young girl. And I think I probably bought one of those and then had to budget the rest of the money after that. So You mentioned doing a calculation. Was that completely just you doing that with your own initiative? Or was there a point in time where your parents said, hey, by the way, you spend this, you're only going to have this left. Was there any sort of interaction there or it was total autonomy? I think there must have been interaction at the beginning, although I don't have memory of it. I do remember even before we had our, our bigger allowance that we had for holiday gifts or birthday gifts that we were given an amount and told that we could choose whatever we wanted that didn't exceed that amount. And I remember going through the catalogs and my sister and I debating and discussing, oh, what would we want? And was that a good use of our money? That kind of thing. So I think those values and the math part of it must have been instilled all the way along. Marla, with the concept of second generation Phi, I know you have nieces and nephews that you try to mentor with with money and and do different types of games and lessons and such. And I'm curious if there are things from your upbringing that you specifically take and teach to them. Well, I've had a challenge with it. Kids that you're mentioning are my friends' kids, but they're close enough to me that I think of them as a niece and nephew and they call me auntie. And my friends, who are their parents, have asked me to kind of help them with money. But I have learned that I think it has to be the parents or the primary guardians to instill these values, because unless the parents are doing the exact same thing that I would recommend, there's going to be something lost in translation. So I do think I've read a lot about what is recommended, and I've tried instilling some of those values. And I remember that those were things that my parents did teach us. And so, for example, going grocery shopping, I remember my mother choosing between which can of beans or pasta that you would buy based on cost unit price, that kind of thing. So I think taking your kids shopping with you and letting them see that you make decisions with every single purchase based on price and value. I think those were the things that we learned all the way along. So Marla, I know just from talks that we've had offline that you had an incredibly successful career working, I believe in marketing and you achieve financial independence through some of the more traditional methods that we've highlighted on the show and primarily uh, saving a large percentage of your income for a, I guess you could say relatively short period of time, 10 to 20 years. And then once your portfolio had reached a certain amount, work was totally optional and you decided to leave. One of the reasons that your story is so fascinating is that unlike many of us, we've actually had conversations where we've said, you know, for this 25, 35 year old retiree, you know, they're going to retire, but then they're planning on doing something else. They're building a side hustle. They're building a business. What's so impressive to me about your story is you have outright said, I don't want to be ruled by money and I actually don't want to do any of those. I don't, I I see the opportunities that continue to open themselves up to me. I have to actively try to avoid that. Is that the way that you still feel? 
Well, part of it might be my laziness, but another part is definitely, I really believe in Mr. Money Mustache's philosophy of like to do things not because of money. And I think because I do have a marketing brain, it's very easy for me to think about monetization and then to turn that into the reason for doing things. And if I'm going to do it, I think, well, the measure of it being successful or worthwhile is revenue or, or money coming from it. At the beginning, when I first retired, which is now getting up to four years ago, I think at the beginning, I was like so concerned about what other people would think of this early retirement that I really would have wanted a measure that it had to be successful. And so that scared me off from starting a blog because what if nobody read it? What if I didn't have the traditional measures of how I'd worked in my career? What if those uh, didn't materialize? So I think it it is a combination of fear and also the need to really detox from a, a hard driving, very ambitious career. So you retired in your early 40s and because you're not focused on specifically on building an additional business, at least at this particular point in time, what does it, I mean, I think this is a truly fascinating question. In fact, we've had people ask, you know, what is it, what does it look like for an individual who is truly just fine and is not actually trying to build something else? What does it actually look like for you to live a post-fi life? It is such a good question and it's really evolving over time and I I'm feeling only now within probably the last year that I'm starting to crack the code. And I think certainly for you guys and for many of the Choose FI listeners and readers of the blog, people are, are starting with an audacious and amazing goal. And then they're striving toward this goal to save money and, and reach their number and fire. And they're, they're going for that goal with some big ideas of what they want to do when they retire. And particularly for people who are retiring in their early 30s, that's a long stretch for them. Whereas I accidentally found myself done at 43, where just through circumstances, I'd left a job and then I started thinking about what I wanted to do and realized, oh, I'm reading Mr. Money Mustache. I think I have enough money. I have very, very minimal needs and I I don't think I need to make any more. So it was a combination of those things that caused me to not want to start a business or or figure out something new and audacious to do. But I think at this point, it's been a lot of reading, a lot of active learning, and a lot of kind of calming myself down and focusing more on the, the inner me versus the ambitious career me. And as a result, I think I could I could start working on different projects with the right people. So Marla, in there you said that you just basically woke up at 43 reading a Mr. Money Mustache article and realized, oh, wow, I'm at Phi already. But I, I guess I just want to drill down on that a little bit. Did you ever have a Phi plan or was it really just as serendipitous as that? You happened to pick up a Mr. Money Mustache article or were you part of, I guess, the Phi blogosphere? Like, had you been reading articles for months or years before that? Or was it just, hey, I found this article. Oh, I'm Phi. I lost a job in 2011, I think. I sued my employer. And during the time of the lawsuit, it took quite a bit longer than what the lawyer had thought it would. And so during that time, I I was just reading and figuring out what should I do and should I start a business. And that's really when I stumbled on, it probably wasn't 2011 when I stumbled on Mr. Money Mustache, but I did stumble into a lot of 
self-reflection and learning about identity and how much my identity had been tied to work. And so I guess I was set up at that stage to to really look at how I wanted to live my life going forward and that being on the hamster wheel or working for somebody else wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. So Marla, you talked about that that self-reflection. I'm assuming just in general and also knowing you that, that that's tied directly into how you're living your life today. And I'm curious if you could kind of dive into your journey to finding what kind of lights you up in life, what you get satisfaction from, community, happiness, all, all this stuff that we constantly talk about. I mean, you are living that day to day. And, and I, I just love for you to tell the audience about it. Sure. I'll try my best because I think ultimately what we look for when we're on the path to FI or we're searching for happiness or kind of a, a more content life, I think we're looking for someone to inspire us with really aspirational stories. And at the beginning, I could tell you all kinds of aspirational stories because I took a look at my what I've been doing since I retired in 2013. And I traveled for 17 weeks in 2014, 12 weeks in 2015, 11 weeks in 2016, and then eight and a half weeks last year. I think at the beginning, I was very much like the idea of escaping the rat race and being free and being unencumbered of schedules and routine was the most intoxicating thing. And I totally encourage everyone to do that because your eyes are open and you get to enjoy the world and meet people and you really feel the freedom that you've been working toward. So that is definitely a big part of the first year. But even with looking at it and saying, okay, I was traveling for 104 days in, sorry, I guess 118 days was my most travel in 2014, there's still a lot of days left where you have to say, okay, what are you doing to fill your time? So I felt like at the beginning, I was cracking the code of how to be happy in a year, how to be happy by the month, how to be happy by the week. But by the day or by the hour, was I really using my time wisely? I'm not so sure. So I did spend a lot of time reading and being, and I think that's what it's really got down to now. So in terms of happiness, my goals are much more simple and I can really take pleasure in the simplicity of spending time with friends, reading, enjoying the outdoors, um, planning fun things to do. I don't have to be, I don't feel that pressure of telling you a great story of how I spend my day. I feel like, you know what? I just feel content. I feel at peace. And that's a pretty wonderful feeling and something I think people can aspire to. Brad, there's a quote, which I'm sure that you can pull up more quickly than I than I do, but I'm pretty sure it's a Henry David Thoreau quote. And it basically just speaks to this idea that there's nothing more powerful than cultivating the ability just to be quiet with one's own thoughts and be content. And I think that's kind of what you're speaking to. But that's not to say that this is a boring existence. In fact, when I think of a global jet-setting person that has really pushed the perimeters of what is possible through travel rewards, it is you. And I think today what we'd like to do is glean a little bit from this experience that you've had. And, and I'd love to hear you talk about it both in the context of the game that you kind of made it with your friends and social circle, but also for our audience, maybe some practical tips as they look to incorporate some sort of travel game plan into their lifestyle, either pre-fi or post-fi. Well, yes, it has been far from boring and I have had fun jet setting around the world and it definitely is the most fun if you can either be 
going on an adventure with your friends and family or meeting up with friends and family around the world. And so travel rewards have made that very possible for me and I think possible for everybody listening. Marla, I love that you highlighted how powerful it is to do this with friends and family. You know, in my mind, it's great to go to all these really cool places, but if you're doing it by yourself, to me, it's kind of, it's kind of got an asterisk beside it. It it isn't as cool as it really could be. I can't imagine anything better than being able to help my friends and family, maybe my neighbors do this incredible trip with us. And especially if you build a tribe of people that are in a similar place in life to be able to go on one of these life-changing adventures really, really changes the entire framework. So I'd love to hear like how you approach this and maybe get a couple examples from you of what you've actually done. Okay. Well, before I actually even started learning about uh, travel rewards, which I think I learned probably around 2012, 2010, we were lucky enough to have the Winter Olympics come to Vancouver. And in anticipation of that, so my career was in professional sports, marketing for professional sports. So everything about the Olympics coming to town was exciting for me. I had invited friends who, there are a couple who you'd like this one, Jonathan, they actually met on safari in Africa. I do approve. (laughs) (laughs) One is from Norway and my original friend, Martin, is from Holland And when they met on safari, the only language they had in common was English, which was neither of their first language. And they met, fell in love, and now they're married. So it's a good uh, travel rewards story, I guess, just in itself. But Martin and B, his wife, she's from Norway and had enjoyed the Olympics as a child in Lillehammer. And so when we told them the Winter Olympics were coming to Vancouver, she said, if we can come, we're coming. And I said, oh, but I really want to hack the Olympics and I want to rent out my house. I'm not sure where you're going to be staying. But yeah, if you're happy with sleeping on the floor, let's do it. So they planned it like 18 months ahead, got their tickets organized, came to Vancouver. And then I was just set on how am I going to get tickets so that everyone can go to the events that they most want to see? Because getting tickets was going to be very challenging. And how am I going to pay for the tickets? Well, I've got to get my house rented. So... I did find a renter for my house, so I made $12,000, moved out of my house, moved in with my sister, and then we had our friends come, and they had to crash as well. So we had uh, them and their little guy, so we had five of us in my sister's house, and then our other friends live in the main house on my property. So long story short, we, we live in a bit of a commune. So we had nine of us hanging out, watching the Olympics, I had somehow lucked into the lottery, not even the lottery, the first come first serve on tickets. And I was able to get the tickets that each person wanted from their country. So for Holland, it's speed skating. For Norway, it's the biathlon. And of course, for Canada, it's hockey. I got all the tickets. I got gold medal hockey. I got the biathlon. I got the speed skating. And we were set. And then I sold the gold medal hockey tickets for $12,000. So I had 12000 from the house rental, 12000 from the hockey tickets, and then all nine of us went to Hawaii for 10 days after the Olympics. Wow. So this was your first adventure, basically doing travel as a group. Absolutely. How did that compare to maybe just traveling by yourself or with one other individual? Well, the whole thing was just such an amazing adventure. Like we had during the Olympics, we had a medal count with flags up on our door and and counting which country was in the lead. And it was day by day. There was a back and forth between our countries. 
And then we went to all the different international pavilions in the city and we went to every free event and medal ceremony. So we had a full two weeks in Vancouver of just, it was the best weather. It was unheard of weather in Vancouver. We lived it up. We were pretty much tourists in our own town. They shut down all the, you could only travel by public transit, no cars. So it was like we were already on vacation. And then for nine of us, it was our first trip ever to Hawaii. We went to Maui. And we got to experience everything as new um, with fresh eyes and just fell in love with Hawaii and cooked our own meals. Like we still wound up having a very frugal experience with living it up like like superstars. And we rented a, I think it was a VRBO house that we rented in Maui. So anyway, it was an amazing trip. And definitely compared to just going, you know, with one friend or your boyfriend or something like that on an adventure, I think it's a lot more fun when you do it as a group. Marla, how did you rent your house for $12,000? Was this pre-Airbnb? Like, how did how did they find you, essentially? Uh, I rented it on Craigslist, and I wound up, the Olympics were for two weeks, and I wound up renting my house, which was a three-suite house. So it normally would have probably rented for $4,000 total um, for a month. And so I was renting it for two weeks, but I, it was a company that was going to do food service for one of the venues in for the Olympics. And so they wanted to rent it for a whole month. And they had nine people, I think, that wanted to rent the three suites. So it was it was probably three times retail value for the month. And obviously, I had to move out for a month, even though the Olympics were only two weeks. So other people did better than that in terms of how much money was to be made on rentals. But overall, I mean, I have no complaints. It was awesome. So this was the light bulb moment. I mean, this it wasn't like you had been doing group travel up to this point. This was it. And it opened up to your eyes to the fact that this is something that you're not seeing anybody talking about, but your life was dramatically better as a result of putting this together. And I would imagine that then you replicated or attempted to replicate this type of experience with additional trips with additional friends. Is that kind of a, is that your, your thought process? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I had always traveled. I was fortunate enough to travel with my family. So I was already sold on the idea of of all kinds of travel, domestic, international, holiday, real travel where you're, you're backpacking. I like all kinds of travel. But uh, certainly what happened on that trip was really falling in love with Hawaii and realizing Hawaii is not the cheapest place to go. And then I started finding all the amazing value you could find with travel rewards and so I've now been to Hawaii like so we went for the first time in 2010 and I've been every year at least once and sometimes twice and for a fraction of the cost of that initial trip so and and going with friends and family so being able to all of us apply for the British Airways visa so that we could get Avios points so that we could redeem our Avios points on Alaska Airlines and fly for only 25,000 miles that kind of thing. Marla, just to dive into that a little more for the audience. So that is one of the great sweet spots, if you will, in all of travel rewards. It's using British Airways miles on either Alaska Airlines or American Airlines, basically from the West Coast. There are about 12 cities approximately on the West Coast where you can fly round trip for only 25,000 British Airways miles. 
And they're actually pretty readily available where, like you said, you can get them from the British Airways card. They're a transfer partner of Chase Ultimate Rewards Points and Amex Membership Rewards Points. So, yeah, British Airways miles are actually quite easy to come across. And, yeah, if you can find those direct flights, it's only 12,500 miles each way or that 25,000 you you reference round trip. So where do you guys fly out of generally to go to Hawaii? Uh, well, we have to fly out of the States to get that redemption because Alaska Airlines doesn't fly out of Vancouver to Hawaii. So there's a little airport, the Bellingham airport between Vancouver and Seattle. So often that's our best bet, but I have flown out of Seattle as well. Okay. So that obviously gets you to Hawaii. I think you mentioned that you do uh, VRBO or maybe Airbnb when you're in Hawaii, but do, are you able to redeem points in any other way to save money, like on rental cars, on on that lodging? What what do you do when you actually get to Hawaii? Yes. I do think for groups, it tends to be the Airbnb or VRBO is the most financially feasible. But if you're just going as a couple or a family, or you can duplicate it with your friends also being able to get the same cards, then there have been some great deals with nights free through different credit card applications. So Hyatt, for one, it used to be that you got two free nights and you could use them anywhere. And now it's 40,000 points. So it's not quite as good of a deal. The Hyatt in Maui is still 20,000 points a night. So that would be an example to say it, it is still replicable. So you would do if you were a couple or you could then multiply this by your friends. Each person who applies for the Hyatt card would get 40,000 points with their sign up. That would equate to two free nights at the Hyatt in Maui, and the other person in the couple could have the other two nights. So that would get you four nights. And then same thing with Hilton. You can get the equivalent of two free nights with the Hilton application. And just, you know, it does mean that you're moving around a little bit, but if you could do four days in Maui and then four days in Oahu or the Big Island, that kind of thing, I think that's a really exciting way to travel in Hawaii. So I would encourage people, like, it is more fun, I think, to book a big house and have your own pool and cook your own dinners, that kind of thing. But if you can add in some luxury with a couple nights here and there with the hotel cards, I think it's well worth it. Yeah, that's neat. I think there's also a Sheridan on the Big Island in Kona that's only a Category 4. So that's uh, Sheridan is Starwood. So that's a pretty reasonable redemption. I, I have a lot of people come to me and ask about Hawaii specifically. So, yeah, if you're staying on the big island and you want to stay at a big a big hotel, that's a pretty solid option. Otherwise, the Starwood hotels have all kind of jumped up in categories, as Marlo, you've probably seen. So they're pretty impractical at this point. But but, yeah, that's a good one. And I think there is a Hyatt place in Waikiki that's actually only like a category four I don't know if you've looked that one up yeah I haven't stayed at that one I have stayed at that Sheraton in Kona on the big island it's very nice it's not a super fancy resort but it's a very good value redemption and then just around the corner from that one in Kona I have stayed I've done a whole week with friends staying at the Holiday Inn Express which again does not sound glamorous but it's a cute little hotel it's brand new and it's walking distance to everything. So we we got some great value out of just going walking to happy hours and then we'd hop in the car to go to the beach, that kind of thing. So that one, unfortunately, has hopped up in value a little or in points redemption a little bit. So it actually, I think, is the, the cash price can sometimes be cheaper than the points value. And then there's also a double tree in Hilo that's new. And so when you're going to the Big Island, I found it's kind of nice, even though Hilo is very rainy, if you want to go to the volcano 
which I think most people would, it would be nice to at least have a night or two in Hilo. And you can use your Hilton points to book that double tree at really good value. And then you're driving across the island and sort of making the most of both sides. So Marla, we talked about the British Airways sweet spot. If you don't mind, just explain generally what a sweet spot is when we talk about that with with award charts and using different airlines and alliances and also any other sweet spots that you know of to Hawaii, since that really is just such a high value destination and really one that's alluring for people. Are there other sweet spots other than the British Airways one that that you know of and, and have used? Sure. Well, I guess to define or attempt to define sweet spots is they they are anomalies in the airline charts or particularly good hotel redemption values that, you know, it might be a a low number of points relative to the high cost. So all the different travel bloggers are always trying to exploit these sweet spots and show you the best way to redeem for the highest the highest value for your points. And the airlines, like I realized, because I just tried to help a guy that we just met this year at Camp Vi in Florida. He wanted to go to Hawaii with his whole, his family of four. And I realized when you start with a new person who has never done any research with travel rewards, how complicated it really is to explain how these sweet spots work and how the alliances between airlines and partnerships work. So to just use the British Airways and Alaska Airlines sweet spot as an example, uh, Alaska, if you book the same flights using Alaska miles, it would be 20,000 points each way if you got their lowest uh, redemption value points. So that would be 40,000 for a round trip. It might not sound that big of a difference to have 40,000 points versus 25,000 But certainly as you multiply that toward a family of four, you're talking a very big point savings by exploiting those values. And really 25,000 points is the equivalent of a domestic round trip on the mainland. So to be able to get six hours each way of flying for that, that those few points, it's very good value. So you're taking your British Airways credit card, you're collecting the points that you got for applying for that card. And then in some cases you can book online, but unfortunately with Alaska Airways Airlines, you have to phone to book, but you're using British Airways miles, which are called Avios, and you're booking an Alaska Airlines flight. So the trick is you have to go on Alaska Airlines to search for your flights, find the flights that you want, which would show up as 20,000 points per each way on each one-way ticket. And then you phone British Airways, you talk to a person in England with a lovely accent, and they help you book your ticket on Alaska Airlines. And you wind up with the exact same flight that you would have booked with Alaska for 15,000 more points on the round trip. Yeah, that's very cool. And, and it's funny for you and I who have been doing this for a number of years, it is second nature. But when you describe that, I'm trying to listen with a beginner's ear. And, and it does sound fairly convoluted, right? But it's fairly simple once you break it down into steps. So yeah. you have to first find the availability. So you, in this case, you're going to the Alaska Airlines website and you're finding their lowest level saver award seats. In that case, you know that they're 20,000 miles each way. So when you found those, that's that aha moment that, all right, I can use my British Airways miles on this exact flight. So what you do is you jot down that date, the flight number, the time, et cetera, and you get both ways. And then you call up the British Airways Executive Club, which is just the name of their frequent flyer program. And you just call up their help number 
and just basically feed them that information. So it's, it's not as complicated as it sounds, but you have British Airways miles. So naturally, even though you're flying on their partner in this case, Alaska Airlines, you have British Airways miles. So you need to call up British Airways naturally to book it. And I think that's, that's a point that people often get confused on. But basically, you're just booking with the airline that you have those miles with. So just keep that in mind. That's the biggest thing. So in this case, Marla just calls up British Airways, feeds them the Alaska flight and date and et cetera, and they book it for her. And just for that little thing, she gets 15,000 miles off essentially on a round trip because it's 25,000 British Airways miles as opposed to 40,000 Alaska Airlines miles. So that is the essence of a sweet spot. Yes, thank you. And to answer your earlier question, there is another sweet spot to Hawaii, which is actually more useful for the non-West Coast listeners who want to go to Hawaii, which is using Korean airlines, which is even funnier. Ah, the plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say that the Korean airlines one is more bittersweet than sweet because it's a little trickier to make happen. I haven't done it personally, but for those that have done it, they say it's very straightforward. You just have a little bit of a learning curve. But Korean Airlines partners with Delta Airlines. So same thing. You get your Korean miles, which you can apply for a Korean Airlines credit card, but you actually can get Korean Air Miles or whatever. Sky Miles, I think, is their program through Chase Ultimate Rewards. They're also a transfer partner with City, So you can get their points fairly easily. And it's the same number of points, 25,000 for a round trip. Korean, you have to book as a as a round-trip ticket on Delta. So you do the same thing. You search for your award availability on Delta Airlines. And then you call, or I think with Korean, you can book online. But you do have to register each member of your family or person that you're booking for up to nine different people with Korean Airlines. So they do require a few hoops to be jumped through. But it is actually available at 25,000 miles from anywhere that Delta flies. It doesn't have to be a direct flight. It just has to be their lowest award redemption. And just before I lose everyone with the complications of the Korean Airlines bittersweet spot, I have prepared a handout that you guys can uh, put in the show notes that explains each of these sweet spots and how it's a bit more of a step-by-step instructions of, of how to go about it. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect. And I think just you do have to kind of immerse yourself in a little bit. I think the great thing is in many cases, it always begins at the same place, which is you need to start with accumulation. Like none of this matters until you have some points build up. But at a certain point, you start to pivot. And now I think, Marla, what you do is very much when you're continuing to accumulate points at at this particular point in time, now you start thinking about where do I want to go? What's the next trip that I'm going to make? at some point in time, that starts to dictate your strategy. Absolutely. And I think what's appealing for those of us who are in the FI community and that has a direct overlay with the travel rewards game is that it really is the gamification part of both, where you feel like you're kind of outsmarting the system and being able to search for these these sweet spots or find really great high value redemptions, it makes you feel so good. And I think many people in the FI community can can relate to that feeling. And it, when you save that money or you like, even when it's not money and it was free, it's still just such a great fun. It's rewarding. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. 
And you're right about the hotel redemptions. I love when I find a sweet spot. And then when the new categories come out each year, it's like invariably that hotel that I found like rises up one or two categories because the hotel chain figured out, oh, wow, we're giving away the farm here. <laughs> that happened to me twice in the last year. We went to Asheville, North Carolina, and there was this great Hyatt. I think it was a Hyatt house. It might have been a Hyatt place. It was a category one. It was only 5,000 Hyatt points a night. And this was like a $400 a night hotel. It was crazy. So it was like nine cents per point, essentially. And they jumped it up, I think, multiple, either two or three categories. So I was like, wow, that was a great redemption. And a similar one in the the San Francisco Bay Area, there's a Hyatt house in Emeryville, uh, which is, I guess, just on the east side of the bay. Again, that jumped up one or two categories after I booked it. So, yeah, you can find these. And and I guess basically, Marla, like how do you suggest people find these sweet spots or like how would you even know that you're getting a, a sweet spot for a hotel? Is it just based on like the cents per point? If you're getting some astronomical like, wow, this is a $500 a night hotel for 5,000 points or like how would someone even determine if they're getting a good deal? There's so many travel rewards blogs. I do spend quite a bit of time on those, and they're always uncovering these sweet spots. And sometimes people keep them secret, and sometimes they share. But in particular, I guess a great example is Marriott Rewards. The Marriott Rewards credit card has an $85 annual fee, and that comes with an up to Category 5, so Category 1 to 5 hotel certificate on your anniversary date every year. So as long as you can get more than $85 worth of value, it's a pretty good card to keep in your wallet. And as such, you want to get out there and try to find a great redemption value and certainly one that's going to be higher than $85. So when you're Googling Marriott Best Category 5 Hotels, there's a whole bunch of bloggers who are constantly researching that. And unfortunately, the categories do change like Brad has just said, and I've had that happen many times, but there's always another great sweet spot and another great value that you never thought about. And let's face it, there's not very many hotels that you're getting for $85 a night anyway. And Marla, another card that people like in that same vein is the IHG card, where that currently has a $49 annual fee and you get a free bonus night at any IHG property in the entire world. I guess after that first account anniversary, so after the first year, but that's at any of their properties, including their top tier intercontinental hotels as well. Is that a card that you've used in the past? And have, do you have any stories of uh, good redemptions with IHG points? I do. IHG is actually my favorite program right now, because once you've exhausted all of your free nights that you get with signups, given that we mostly can't get the same cards again, or at least there's a big gap, what I'm always trying to do is just maxim like take the cost that I would have spent on travel and at least get them reduced significantly. And that's where IHG really kills it. So you do get that one night certificate and I've redeemed it. So you've paid $49 on your annual fee and then you can redeem it anywhere in the world. So I've redeemed it in San Francisco at their top intercontinental, which I think the night that I stayed was 600 and something dollars a night. I've redeemed it in Paris, um, in the opera arrondissement, and it was a a thousand a thousand euros a night hotel stay. So there's really endless examples. There's overwater uh, villas that you can get in Morea, all kinds of things with IHG. So the trick is if you're hope if you're a couple or going with someone else and you each have the card, then at least you can get 
two free nights, but then you want to try to collect enough IHG points that you can hopefully have your vacation out a few more nights. So that tends to be the next trick. Okay, guys, just a real quick sidebar. All of the information that we're relaying in this episode was accurate when we recorded in February 2018, and some of the annual fee details have changed. So always check updated information if you've applied for a credit card. All right, Marla, so we, we spent a little bit of time talking about some stuff that you and Brad were able to take advantage of the past that's gone away. Uh, I'm wondering, like right now, what's the hottest thing in the travel reward space right now? What, what are you incredibly excited about in 2018? Well, I am excited about the Southwest Companion Pass, which I know you guys have talked about already. And Jonathan, I think you just got yours. Like last month, I missed it by like less than $200, but I got it this month. And yes, I'm incredibly excited. Tell me what I can do with it. I'll tell you two things about it. So number one, the great thing about the Southwest Companion Pass is you put in all this effort to get your 110,000 points in your account. And now you have the opportunity to travel with another person and you can switch that person if you want to. I'm not advising you guys to ditch your wives, but sometimes you might want to take a trip with another person. You can change it four times in a calendar year, which means you can change it a total of eight times in your two years or one year plus however many months since you earned it. And so you can take that companion as long as there's a seat on Southwest. So you book yourself and you hopefully book at the lowest cost in points or cash, which would be the WANA getaway fare. But even if the flight is now almost sold out and there's only the highest, most expensive ticket available, as long as there's a seat, you can put your companion on that flight with you. So it really is an exciting way to travel where now that you'll have your companion pass and you have 110,000 points, I feel certain that you're going to be able to make those 110,000 points last for the rest of this year and all of next year and not pay a dime on Southwest Airlines and hopefully get thousands of dollars of value out of the next couple of years with Southwest. I'm so excited to finally get a chance to use this. This is like, this is something that I have been wanting to pull off literally since like last July. And I was like, ah, maybe I should wait till maybe I should wait a little bit longer before getting started on that. But like, finally, I am thrilled to say that I have it. I'm thrilled for you, Jonathan. We'll have to do one of these group trips where you bring Danny I bring my sister. We see who else we can. Let's go visit Doug in Hawaii. Yes, because Southwest is announcing or they've announced that they will be flying to Hawaii. And hopefully it's by November, December before my companion pass runs out. Okay, we'll see what we can do. (laughs) That's really cool. And and one thing I just wanted to clarify real quick is even if Jonathan didn't use all of his 110,000 Southwest miles, they don't go away. It's not like they, they aren't tied to the companion pass. It's just that he has this companion pass through December 31st of 2019. In his case, essentially those points have double value, if you will. But if he just happened to not use all of them, those miles would still exist in his Southwest rapid rewards account. He just wouldn't have the companion pass, let's say, on January 1st, 2020, but he'd still have the points left. So, you know, just tiny little clarification, but just for everybody's the clarity of mind out there, it's just important to, to realize that they are separate. Brad, I think that's a great point. And there's another point in that same vein that as you're earning your points toward your companion pass, you can actually spend those dollars down before you earn it. So if Jonathan was sitting there waiting to 
get to his 110,000 points and he wasn't quite there, but he wanted to take a trip in the meantime, he wouldn't be able to, to put the companion on for free, but he can still go ahead and redeem Southwest points without it reducing from the 110,000 points. All you have to do is have earned them in the year. It doesn't matter if you spent them before you hit that target. Oh, wow. I never thought about that nuance. That's very useful to know. It is. So, so Marla, what, like, so I have my companion pass. Is there any way that I can stack this with anything else that we've talked about or any other techniques that you've picked up to really amplify my results? Yes. Marriott has a great program called Nights and Flights. And basically at the sweet spot level, they have a bunch of different redemptions, but we might as well cut to the chase and go with the, the best one, which is to acquire 270,000 Marriott points And that can be redeemed for 120,000 Southwest Airlines Rapid Rewards miles, which would go into your Southwest account, and a seven-night Category 1 to 5 Marriott hotel certificate for a stay. So if I'm understanding what you're saying, I can get, you can get your, basically your pick of hotels around the country as long as it's in this Category 1 to 5. And on top of that, my rapid rewards points, which were sitting at 110,000 miles, have now been bumped up due to this sweet spot to like 230, 240. And I have the companion pass. So this is a way that basically, yes, of course your flight is going to be free. And on top of that, you have lodging at more or less your pick of hotels also for free. I mean, Brad, is this, is this the baseline here? Is this, am I understanding this right? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty accurate summary of it. I, I think, like you said, to stack this with the companion pass is, is ultra valuable because really, while 270,000 Marriott points sounds like a large number, those are really not as valuable, certainly, as, in my opinion, Starwood points and Hyatt points. So, for instance, you can generally find a Marriott sign-up bonus in the vicinity of somewhere between 70 and 80,000 points. So uh, basically two or three of those. And now, like Marla said, Starwood and Marriott are owned by the same company now. So actually Starwood points transfer to Marriott, but it's one Starwood point turns into three Marriott. So if you had 30,000 Starwood points, that would be 90,000 Marriott points. So it, it gives you a sense that the, the Marriott points are worth a, a, essentially a third as much as a Starwood point. So long story short is 270,000 Marriott points are pretty easy to come across. And what in your case, Jonathan, what that would turn into is that 120,000 Southwest miles. But again, since you had the companion pass, the value is more or less doubled. So it's like getting 240,000 Southwest miles worth of value Plus, oh, by the way, you get seven nights at a Marriott category one through five, which, albeit, are not the world's greatest hotels because the Marriott does go up to all the way up to category nine. But you can find some pretty darn good ones. So especially, you know, you can travel anywhere you want in the U.S. and now hopefully Hawaii pretty soon, Mexico, Central America with Southwest miles, and you assuredly can find a pretty darn good Marriott category one through five. So yeah, to stack that with the companion pass is, is a really, really good plan. But this is the family play. This is the group play. You know, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking, how the heck do you spend 240,000 Southwest rapid rewards points, especially if you get buy one, get one because you have the companion pass. Well, it gets pretty easy if you're talking about doing group travel, if you're talking about bringing your family of five with you on a trip. I mean, this one play 
is what it looks like to take your family to Hawaii later on this year or anywhere else in the country for seven days. Just this one simple move. And I mean, the game plan, Marla's written it all down for you. It's going to be in the show notes for today's episode. Absolutely. And I mean, Southwest does, you know, we're all excited that they're going to be flying to Hawaii, but they also fly to lots of places in the Caribbean and Mexico and into Aruba, I believe. Brad, you can probably add more destinations, but there is a really great opportunity for international travel at great redemptions. And even if you're using the points without the companion pass component, because you are bringing along your kids or some extra friends or in-laws, parents, that kind of thing, even if you're just getting face value, this Nights and Flights value is over the top in terms of what you're getting out of it. And I just wanted to add one more thing about the seven-night stay. The other great thing about the Marriott points is now you've got a seven-night certificate for Category 1 to 5, but you're allowed to upgrade it to any level just by transferring in more Marriott points. And those can be transferred in from your own account or from your spouse's account, a friend's account, anybody else's account to upgrade the stay. So it's 30,000 per category added on to the seven night stay. So you've already got a seven night stay at cat five. If you found a great redemption at cat eight, which I just learned about this incredible one in Crete in Greece, which you guys might be going near a seven night stay at a category eight. That's a one bedroom suite with your own hot tub. And a beautiful ocean. <laughs> Brad, we could share a hot tub. <laughs> you, do, you just have to add 90,000 more points to that. So there's some really endless possibilities of how to, how to really optimize that redemption. So I love how you mentioned the Caribbean. I like this idea of people do have different destinations in mind. And while there, if you get down to the granular level, there's probably a million of them, you know, almost an infinite number of them. There are enough common threads to say that we should give examples in different places. So you mentioned the Caribbean. What about Costa Rica? Costa Rica is on my bucket list as one of the travel redemptions I most want to go on. And what's so great about it is you can fly on Southwest Airlines to either San Jose or Liberia, Costa Rica, and those fly out of Houston and Fort Lauderdale with a couple other destinations, which I'll list in our notes. But you can fly on Southwest, use your companion pass, get to Costa Rica, and then there's an amazing Hyatt redemption. So if you have the Hyatt credit card or you transfer in some, and or I guess, you transfer in some points from uh, Chase Ultimate Rewards to Hyatt, then you can redeem for this great Category 4 Hyatt, which is called the Andaz Papagayo Resort. And what's great about that is it's a low value or a sweet spot redemption at only 15,000 points a night. So you would get you get 40,000 points per Hyatt credit card as a sign-up bonus. And the nights are only 15,000 at the resort. So a couple is pretty close to getting a week's stay especially if you transfer in some extra points to stay at this really sweet resort and kids can stay free in the room. So you can have a family of four go to Costa Rica for, I have an out-of-pocket cost of around 350 bucks, which would include all your taxes and fees and your credit card annual fees to get the cards needed to get on that trip. Brad, I think she has the Barretts covered. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, Marla. Yeah, that's that's funny because that's actually a trip that we have looked into uh, in that particular hotel because, yeah, the Andaz brand is 
fantastic. I, Marla, you probably stayed at multiple ones. I've only stayed at the one in New York City, the Andes Fifth Avenue, but that's probably our favorite hotel. It's just like this really kind of cool, upscale, chic hotel and uh, right in this perfect location in midtown Manhattan. And yeah, just a really, really cool brand. There's another, there's an Andes in Maui as well, which I don't know if you've stayed there, Marla, but yeah, lots of different cool Andes properties. And this is the lowest category one that I know of at category four being only 15,000 points per night. Yeah. And I have not stayed in, at an Andaz, but I've done walkthroughs of them and I know they're really highly rated. This one comes comes back with amazing reviews and you know, it might not stay category four for long. So I think it's a really good one for people to put on their list and, and make a plan to go. And the other thing I would caution about is sometimes in Central American countries or Mexico, South American countries, and even Europe sometimes, the actual cash price of some hotels is quite a bit lower. So you want to be careful with these redemptions because sometimes you can stay down the road at a non-chain hotel or in a nice pension or a cheap Airbnb for a fraction of the cost. So you want to be careful with that. But I think this one is quite special and really an excellent redemption to have a, a really great holiday. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to my point of when I first start with any travel rewards redemption, I just get a sense of what the cash price is. And in your case, it, it, it could be at the exact hotel, but really what you're describing is almost like a replacement cost, right? Like what's the hotel down the road? What does that cost? Like, sure, it's great to say, oh, I'm getting a $500 a night hotel at the Andes, but if I can get a pretty nice hotel down the road for 75 bucks, well, what's really the true value? Though that said, of course, sometimes splurging is just really nice. And when you can get it for only 15,000 points a night, it's really, really tough to beat that. But, but just in general, I think it's a smart plan to just get a sense, even when you're, when you're booking airlines or hotels, as we've talked about throughout this episode, just get a sense of what that cash price is. I couldn't agree more. Um, I know that there are lots of people that are interested in Europe. And I know, Brad, specifically, and this is relevant to you, you've been helping people right now who are trying to figure out how to get to Chautauqua and how to get to Greece, figure out what travel would look like to some of these more exotic destinations. Is there any like common threads or anything that we could bring into this conversation that would be a value add for our community? Yeah, Jonathan, that's that's a really good and timely question, certainly. And and I can't wait actually to get Marla's opinion on this and and hear kind of some of the better redemptions she's done personally to Europe or has seen or helped people with. But I I actually have found and and I think this will be useful for the audience that there are instances where traditional mile redemption according to like the standard award chart just actually doesn't make sense. And what I've found with this Greece trip in particular is that this is one trip where it often doesn't make sense to use traditional miles. And the great part is there's always another answer. And, and that's this is a, a cool illustration. So it generally costs 60,000 airline miles to fly round trip from the continental U.S. to Europe. Okay, but that's 60,000. You actually also have to pay taxes and fees to basically the country that you're flying to. So in most cases, it's not that significant, but but it's still something. It's somewhere between maybe $70 and 100 or 120. So not going to break the bank obviously, but but it's it's not nothing, right? Whereas if you fly into and out of the UK, I've seen 
UK like departure taxes, they call them in upwards of $200. So you have to factor that into the calculation when you determine like, Hey, should I be redeeming miles? So what I recommend for everybody is just kind of do a quick search on like kayak or travelocity or wherever you would generally search and just find out, Hey, what is this flight going to cost me if I just paid cash? Right? So what's a normal flight cost? And then you keep in the back of your mind, okay, this is going to cost 60,000 miles if I can find the perfect saver award flight that's going to line up for me, plus maybe $100 in fees. So with the instance of Chautauqua, I was finding flights from most major international airports in the U.S. for in the $800 range. So keep in mind, if I use 60,000 miles and paid 100 in cash, I'm only getting maybe a little more than one cent per point value out of those 60,000 miles. Because really, it's only a net savings of $700, right? Because the $800 fee less the $100 that I have to pay out of pocket. That's not a great redemption to me. So that's something that I'm really not advising people to use 60,000 miles. Now, naturally, if the flight costs 1,500 bucks, well, that changes the calculation entirely, right? But that's why you need to get kind of that baseline. That's where I start first. And in this instance, what I think is a useful tool is a card like the Capital One Venture card, for instance. There are these fixed value cards, they call them, where basically these miles are worth one cent per point no matter what. So there's no more, no less. You basically just use that credit card to pay for your travel. Nobody knows or cares that you have miles. It's irrelevant. You're just paying for the travel with your credit card. And then after the fact, you log into your credit card account and kind of like erase, quote unquote, that charge with your miles. So that's an instance where like 50,000 Capital One Venture Miles, which is the current bonus, that'll save you 500 bucks and you can pick any flight you want, right? You just book at Expedia or Kayak or Travelocity, wherever, or at one of the airline sites and you don't have to kind of shoehorn it into, hey, I need to find this perfect saver reward flight to Greece. Again, I just try to create these like mental models that you should use to approach award travel. And I think just kind of giving that point of view is is really important for people. But now that I've kind of gone on for a while, Marla, what do you think about that? And and what have you seen as far as redemptions to Europe specifically? I like that plan. And I think, you know, what you mentioned or didn't quite highlight is one of the main things is trying to find the perfect flight with especially if you're a couple or you're going as a family to be able to find availability for the exact dates that you need and the the number of tickets where you can all be on the same flight, that can be very tricky at the best of times. So using those fixed value cards, I think is a great solution. My next solution in that same vein is I think we're all familiar, anybody who's listened to your first travel rewards episodes, everybody's got ultimate rewards points. And the cool thing about the Ultimate Rewards portal is you can actually redeem, and I know, Brad, you were coaching Jonathan for his flight to, I don't know if it was to Zimbabwe or South Africa, but to use the portal to see what the cost in cash was for the ticket. Meaning the Chase Ultimate Rewards portal lets you actually buy a ticket for either cash or points. And it it works the same way as what Brad's talking about with the fixed value ones. You would just use your points as a in the normal case, as a one-to-one, a penny a point, basically. And sometimes, if it's a lower-priced ticket, it's a nice bonus to do it that way. And you also earn miles for the travel. So while you're traveling overseas and you're traveling greater distances, 
you could be earning quite a few miles for the for those flights. So the neat thing to me that is a little bit different than the standard on the Ultimate Rewards portal is if you have the Sapphire Reserve. So the Sapphire Reserve, a lot of people got last year because it had this unprecedented 100,000-point sign-up bonus, which was just crazy, so exciting. Unfortunately, that is no longer available, and it's down to 50,000. But 50,000 Ultimate Rewards points is still a huge sign-up bonus. And the downside of the Sapphire Reserve is it doesn't they don't waive the annual fee in the first year, and you can only have one of the uh, Sapphire cards. So you can't have both the Sapphire Reserve and the Sapphire Preferred at the same time. So you have to kind of juggle and think about which one is better for you. But the Sapphire Reserve allows you to book in the Ultimate Rewards portal at 1.5 times the points. So if you're using the Ultimate Rewards portal and you have the Sapphire Reserve card and can redeem at 1.5 times, let's use Brad's example where you were going to book a ticket through United Airlines, for example, and it was 60,000 points for um, a ticket to Europe. Instead, you buy it for $800, but Ultimate Rewards will show you that that was going to be, let's say, 70,000 Ultimate Rewards points. But if you use that the 1.5 times value, suddenly it comes in at 53,000 ultimate reward points. So now it's definitely 7,000 points cheaper than if you had redeemed them through United. And it's covered those fuel surcharges or taxes because the, the, the $800 covered those costs. So it's just a great one to be able to check on. And one of the things I've read recently on the blogs is if you got the Sapphire Preferred, which is the one that Brad lists as his most recommended card, and I would agree. So you would get that card. Right now it gives you a 50,000-point sign-up bonus, and it waives the annual fee. You can, at the end of that year or any time after you've received the bonus, you can actually upgrade that to the Sapphire Reserve, and now you can take advantage of this one-and-a-half times feature. So you basically you wouldn't get the sign-up bonus, but you can only get one at a time anyway, but you would unlock this opportunity to potentially save money on your flights. So I think this is a really well-rounded look and there's probably even more depth that we can go into with talking about how to navigate between the reserve and the preferred and who would benefit from each one. I think our audience, hopefully this is a friendly audience that has already listened to episode nine of our podcast. Clearly, this is not the episode to be introduced to travel rewards. You really do need to have a baseline and listen to our episode nine first. This will update that and give you kind of what is going on now in 2018, give you some ideas of how to execute that game plan. But Marla, I thought one of the ways that would be really cool to actually bring this particular episode home is highlight an article that was actually written by our friend Noah, who writes over at Money Metagame. One of the things that he was contesting is whether or not people that pursue travel rewards through this kind of gamification fun type aspect that we have, do we end up spending more by doing that? It's a great article. It definitely will challenge your thought process and we'll put it in the show notes. But I guess my question to you is what's your take on that? My thinking has really evolved because at the beginning, I think I was a total greedy Gus where I was like, how many cards can I apply for? I'll apply for three cards every three months. What's my minimum spend? And I just amassed this huge amount of frequent flyer miles. 
and I didn't have a particular redemption in mind. And I think when you have so many points, what it does is it encourages exactly what we in the FI community avoid and are not really part of, which is consumer culture. So now, instead of us saying, oh, I'm saving up for a trip, instead, I'm just blowing miles. And, and you see this all over the Travel Rewards community, is people taking these extremely luxurious trips all the time, and often just for like a weekend, because they can, and it's free. So it becomes a bit of a keeping up with the Joneses in terms of Travel Rewards, where you want to fly in luxury first class and outdo your neighbor. And then you're going to Paris. Are you going to Paris to see Paris? Or are you going to Paris to see the fancy Hyatt hotel that you can redeem, you know, for this great value redemption, but then you're turning around and moving on to Milan to go to the Park Hyatt there. So I think I chased that a little bit at the beginning. And now I would really encourage people to apply for only the number of points that you're actually saving up for a particular trip Certainly, it's a great treat and luxury to travel in first class, especially for really long flights, like the eight, nine hours or more flights. If you're going to South Africa, it's a great splurge. But let's not turn it into something that's exactly what we were trying to avoid by sort of sucka consumer culture. <laughs> <laughs> and Marla, I think that's kind of full circle on how we started this entire conversation, which is travel with family and friends, right? Instead of it being this check off things on a, some weird travel bloggers bucket list of flying first class in this quote product or something, which is what they call an airline. It, you know, it's just, it's just this kind of weird culture that, that doesn't appeal to me, but what you talked about, which is bringing it back to family and friends. And I just, I love that. And, and kind of helping people travel and save money. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Exactly. And I think erasing the expenses that you were going to spend anyway, that's the greatest thrill. And that's what I think Noah is covering in his article. So if you're if you're ramping up your travel because of the points, then you certainly are spending more than you would have ordinarily spent. But if instead you're saying, oh, twice a year I want to go home to visit my family or I have a sick relative I'd like to go spend some time with, by all means, use those points for those kind of trips and don't have a big expense on your credit card at the end of that experience. So first of all, if you're listening to this episode and this is your first introduction to travel rewards, this is absolutely not the episode to start with, obviously. You go back, you listen to episode nine, that'll give you a great baseline to understand all the sweet spots that we talked about in this episode. We also had an episode, episode 31, where we highlighted how to basically get your family to Disney World for free and some other strategies as well. But this is the strategy for 2018 and Marla absolutely highlighted all the amazing deals that are still out there. If you want to get access to our comprehensive guide of travel rewards resources, you can just go to choosefi.com slash travel. Everything is there for you on one page. We've tried to make it as simple as possible to just go ahead and get started. I know we mentioned a lot of cards today. If you want to find all of the links to all of the cards that we talked about, you can just go to choosefi.com slash cards. Now, Marla, normally this would be the end of the episode, but on this show, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? Yes, I'm ready. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. 
Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Marla, question number one, your favorite blog. Well, I know it's been oversaid, but my favorite blog is definitely Mr. Money Mustache. I call myself his unofficial stalker, but we have become friends, and I just think I wouldn't be in the situation I am now without him. What is your favorite article of all time? Question number two. My favorite article of all time is The Fog of Work which is written by Doug Nordman over at the Military Guide to Retirement. And I think it's such a great article because if you're not in the military community, you probably don't read Doug's amazing blog, but he's a very inspiring person who's been retired for 16 years. He's so optimistic. He's really a Zen kind of person who I really look up to as somebody who I think has figured out happiness and contentment. And this article, The Fog of Work, It's obviously a a nice metaphor with the fog of war and works very well for his blog. But I think it works for all of us because when you're in work and on the hamster wheel and living the day-to-day normal normal life in our culture, do you really have time to plan for your retirement? Do you have time to think about what's going to really make you happy? You don't. And his article really goes into how that happens and how to get out of it. And I think it links back to some some of the beautiful interviews you've done already with um, like the couple who goes on retreat planning weekends and people that like you have to carve out the time to really think about your life. And the amazing luxury of being retired is to have that time. And that's what I'm the most grateful for. And I think that article really sells it in terms of that fog lifts and suddenly you can see the sun and there's no clouds in your way and life is a lot more clear. Wow, that's brilliant, Marla. I've, I've never read that article, but I'm certainly going to head over there immediately after we finish recording and check it out. So thank you very much. And well, and thank you to Doug because I think he does amazing, amazing stuff for the military community and is really an inspiration for all of us in the FI community. He's coming on the show. He's going to be on the show later this year. Or we'll be surfing with him in Hawaii on our next group trip. <laughs> yeah, yeah <Nice>. absolutely. <laughs> All right, Marla, question number three, your favorite life hack. Well, I was thinking about this one, and I think my best one is international arbitrage with the United States. So I'm Canadian, but I have a place in the States and I go buy all the things that are cheaper there and use them in my day-to-day life. And I occasionally find awesome items that I can sell in Canada for way more money than they sell for in the United States on Craigslist. So I think I, I arbitrage almost everything. It works, it works great for me. Wow. I like it. Very creative and certainly an opportunity. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. Well, I, I'm kind of wimping out on this one because I'm using a mistake that sounds like a mistake at first, but then it turns into a really great move. <laughs> Total wimp out. Yep. Go for it. I sold my house, and this was part of my whole FI journey. The Vancouver housing market has been on a crazy bull market run. And I sold my house in 2011, thinking it was nearing the peak and I better cash out now. And I did really well. I had tripled my money in 10 years, so I have no complaints. But I was only to see that the bull market continued from 2011 until today. And the new owners sold the house again and they made another 400 and something thousand dollars on that house. Wow. That's crazy. So how did how does this redeem itself? 
Well, how it redeems itself is I had to go back and do some forensic accounting to say, hey, what did I do with that money when I cashed out that um, or sold that house in 2011? And how much did that money grow? And I'm happy to report that through index fund investing, I made more money than the owners made on their house. What? That, that is so cool. And you didn't have to pay taxes or upkeep or anything like that. The money was just yeah, passively or, working for you. Or manage tenants. And the best thing about it is if I hadn't sold that house, not only would I probably not have retired, I also wouldn't have learned everything that I learned about investing. So I, I don't think I found Mr. Money Mustache until after I had the pile of money and I was so nervous about how to invest it and what to do with it and researching and all that stuff. So my greatest financial mistake is probably my greatest financial win. You wow. are just Jonathan. the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best answer ever on the hot seat. <laughs> I think so. We, were, we weren't sure whether or not we were going to have time for this hot seat. Can you imagine missing that? <laughs> all right. Question number five. The advice you would give your younger self. You know what? It's it goes into my hippy dippiness, but I think it's um, be kind to yourself and live in the moment. I think I worried a lot along the way, and clearly had nothing to worry about. All right, Marla, we have a bonus question. So, in the Phi community, we often talk about cutting expenses and you know not wasting money frivolously. But but that said, there are certainly purchases that you make that enrich your life. And I'm curious if there are any that you can point to in the last, I don't know, let's say 12 months or so that that have really made your life better. I think, again, I'm wimping out because I'm going with a common answer, but I love the Instant Pot. I know Laura says- Oh, that's not wimping out. It's so good. Marley, you have to convince Laura, I think, because she's <laughs> she's very content with her, her cooking ability and, and her cooking style. So I think she needs to have someone make the case like really specifically for her. So- uh, maybe, maybe when you finally meet her in person, but, but keep going. Sorry. Oh no, that's it. I was just, it's, I, I love cooking and I have all the time in the world, so I don't really need any shortcuts, but it's again, it's a gamification type thing. Like if I can make the same meal that would have taken me three hours to braise in the oven and I can make it in 35 minutes from fridge to plate, it's exciting. That is very cool. It's compelling. I agree. <laughs> what does it look like if it's simple? The Instapot. Done. <laughs> Mara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Now there's people listening to this and they would love to reach out to you, find out more about your story and probably have a follow-up question about travel rewards. What's the best way for someone to reach you? Well, I wish I had a blog to point you to, but I would say just find me on Facebook. It's Marla Tanner. Tanner is with one N and you'll find me in the show notes. Okay. And yes, you are in the, you are in one of the local groups and in the main choose FI group as well. So Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And you guys really are some of my favorite people in the world. And definitely you're my favorite podcast. So thanks very much for having me on. It's an honor. Brad, I think it comes through in this episode, just what a genuinely good person Marla is and how much fun it is just to be around her, to benefit from her stories and her experiences. Like she is truly a connector. And I love that you you referenced the glue that binds because in my mind, these camp fives, the camp mustaches, the types of the events that where the Fi community really comes together, you know, Marla and people like Marla are the reason that they're so incredibly engaging and compelling. And this episode to me just it just cemented that. Yeah, I agree completely. This was a wonderful episode. I think it really gave the audience a, a good background on travel rewards, on a lot of the sweet spots that you can look for, and also the mentality when you approach 
award booking. So I think that was ultra valuable. And also, yeah, just giving you a sense of the Phi community. Marla is someone that we've met multiple times at these events, and there are just so many wonderful people, as we've discussed over and over again, that that you're going to meet at these meetups, right? Be it a Chautauqua, a FinCon, a Camp Phi, a Camp Mustache, and you're going to make lifelong friends. It's just the way that it goes, right? You've found your tribe. And yeah, Marla has really become one of my close friends in the world. And you know, I just met her last year at Camp Mustache. So it really is amazing how this all works and how the community comes together. So yeah, again, a big thank you to Marla for being on the show. All right, guys, if you got value from this episode, if you've been getting value from the episodes up to this point, just take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform that you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know that you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us in what we're doing here at Choose FI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseify.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of Fi, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free and just go to choosefi.com slash PC, P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of Fi, and right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of Fi. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.